are listening to The Addiction Files, where we discuss evidence-based treatment, clinical pearls and resources, while striving to destigmatize the treatment of addiction in our medical culture and save lives. We are The Addiction Doctors, Dr. Darlene Peterson and Paula Cook. Welcome to this episode of The Addiction Files. We have Dr. Melissa Chen joining us. She is an occupational and addiction medicine physician here to talk to us about substance use disorders in the workplace. This is going to be a fantastic episode and she's going to introduce herself. So we're going to switch things up a little bit and I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Chen. Hello, everyone. My name is Melissa Chen, and I've been an occupational medicine physician for the past 12 years. So what is occupational medicine? It's not occupational therapy. Occupational medicine is about taking care of injured workers and keeping people healthy and well to do their work and be as productive as possible. During my residency years, I started looking how opioid use and opioid-related overdose impact workers and industry. We found that people who have an opioid use disorder are working, and it impacts workers' compensation injuries and work-related injuries, and people who are struggling with that type of addiction returning back and being as productive as possible. Around 2015, I started the ESPERT education program at the University of Utah. I'm sure you guys are familiar with ESPERT. stands for Screening, Brief Intervention, and Referral to Treatment uh, for Substance Use Disorder. And it's a universal measure, preventive measure, to screen and address risky and pathologic substance use with your patients. I started getting into ESPERT and was teaching a lot of ESPERT sessions around the state of Utah with current providers. And during that time, people would say, I don't know where to send my patients for treatment. I wanted to be part of the solution. And in 2020, in the midst of a pandemic, I decided to go back, uh, complete my addiction medicine fellowship. So about 50% of my time is in addiction medicine. Part of that is running the inpatient consult service at the University of Utah Hospital. And the other part is working with CoImagine, a non-for-profit organization focused on quality healthcare delivery and developing evidence-based medicine and sound policy on opioid use and opioid opioid stewardship, and how to prevent opioid overdose. Um, The other 50% of my time, I do occupational medicine at the University of Utah, where I am the medical director and help various companies make sound policy for their employees. That, That is amazing. What an asset you are to our community, Melissa. I'm so happy that we have you and that you went through the fellowship and now you stuck around. So thanks for joining the podcast. And I'm really excited to talk to you about this topic because in medicine, we all interface with the working public, whether we're in family medicine or internal medicine, obstetrics, surgery, I mean, you name it, right? Orthopedics. Everything, Mm -hmm. orthopedics. And in addiction, we certainly do. And we're trying to keep our folks in work or get them back to work. So I just love that you bring both of these worlds together. And I'd love to know, just tap into your expertise on this topic. Like what does substance use look like in the workplace? And what can we do about it to kind of facilitate our patients in terms of 
being the best selves in the workplace if they have an SUD and what can employees do in order to help and not just fire folks? I mean, we have a lot to talk about. So how about we just start with what's the scope? Like what's what's the deal with substance use in the workplace in this country anyway? Vast, the majority of people who struggle with a substance use disorder are in the workplace. They're working. Before we pivot to the, that population, let's take a step back and look at the general population as a whole in the United States. So SAMHSA did a study back in 2019, and they found that in the last month, about 60% of the population that are over the age of 12 used a substance. So 60%, that's roughly 165 million Americans used a substance over the age of 12. Now, okay, alcohol I'm was- the- interrupt. Does that include nicotine? Yes. Okay. Yes. So, so the number- of the population. 60%. And of course, there's a lot of overlap, right? Because it's not like people who drink alcohol is different from the people who smoke cigarettes, who are different from people who smoke marijuana. So there is some overlap. But that's a huge number, 60%. It's a huge, 60%. The vast majority of that was alcohol consumption. Second is tobacco. Third is marijuana. And we find that within that population, we know that 60% of the Americans over age 12 are using a substance. But then if you take a step Take a step back and look at people who worked full time. So in another study by SAMHSA, all the way back in 2012, they found that there were roughly 113 million adults working full time in the United States. And about 10% of that had a substance use disorder. And then out of the people, the 28 million adults who worked part time, about 13% had a substance use disorder. It's there, wow. right? That's so when you, people. it's a lot of people, when you look at your company of let's say 300 employees, chances are 30 will be struggling with a substance use disorder. And that's a substance use disorder. That's not even risky substance use. Right. This is like DSM-5 substance mm-hmm. use disorder, mild, moderate, or, or severe, not just substance misuse or mm-hmm. risk. Binge drinking. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Looking at in another lens, how if you have a substance use disorder or people with a substance use disorder, how many of them are in the workplace? And there was a study in 2017 published by Journal of Occupational Environmental Medicine that showed roughly 80% of people with a substance use disorder are in the workplace. The most common is alcohol, right? Because it's the most prevalent and most easily accessible. Keep in mind, the general population of adults over the age of 18, 80% of them are also in the workplace. So they're not different. They're not a different category. They are working next to you. They are working with you. Right. Okay. So the numbers are huge. And maybe I'm jumping ahead, but do employees know this? Do we understand this as a medical community? Or what do you think the level of understanding about this statistic is? I don't think medicine in general has a good appreciation of work. And I know they don't have a good appreciation of addiction, right? Then we're not asking people about their risky substance use, and we're not asking people what they do for a living, even though both activities are so consuming and really impact our life. If we look at occupation, what we do, so many of us use that as our identity. That is our identity. How many, like I 
as a physician, that's part of my identity, just like you two. Very few, few people acknowledge that when you're doing the history taking. Medicine in general, they don't have a good understanding, especially when it comes to activities at work that can impact health, such as shift work, increased risk for diabetes, increased risk for insomnia and sleep disturbance. Circadian rhythm is greatly affected when you have someone with shift work or someone who has to do a lot of heavy lifting and you know more musculoskeletal strains and sprains. Yeah, that is fascinating. And so do you, okay, so shift work is a whole thing. And I think we all well, you certainly have because you work in occupational medicine 50% of the time. But Darlene and I, who work in family medicine a lot of the time or most of the time, I mean, shift workers present with all kinds of mood disorders and tend to highly represent substance use disorders. So that is this a studied phenomenon? Shift workers with a substance use disorder? It's not. I think we have a potential, you know, NIOSH project, research project right there. <laughs> <laughs> what, what about certain populations or certain kind of employ, employed individuals? Are certain jobs more at risk for substance yes. use? Yes. We know that when it comes to certain types of work, that's more, that has a more permissive attitude towards substances, that it would, they have a higher risk of having employees with substance use disorder, right? Having, you know, the martini lunches and the happy hour and industry where a lot of alcohol or substances is being easily accessible is a risk factor. So we know that the number one industry that really has a high prevalence of substance use disorder is in the entertainment, recreation, and food industry, right? That makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. And alcohol is the number one substance that they struggle with. And number two being any type of kind of illicit drugs is what studies have shown. When we talk about the entertainment and food industry, this goes all the way down to our restaurant workers mm -hmm. are included in that category, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, Anthony Bourdain, right? He talks yes. about that in his book, Kitchen Confidential, having a significant cocaine and heroin use disorder. And I believe he was, he also struggled with alcohol use. It's joked about in our society when we bring up entertainment, they're thinking like some of our high profile celebrities. When you're going to a restaurant, these are the people that you're seeing every day that mm -hmm. may be struggling with a substance use disorder. And especially when you're dealing with someone who has their livelihood is a bartender, right? And you say, okay, you need to stop drinking. <laughs> but they have to handle the liquor and make cocktails for 40 hours a week. That's a Absolutely. hard one. Absolutely. And who else I would include in that category are flight attendants who have to serve alcohol part of their job and they have access to the minis. And mm -hmm. I know you probably saw a ton of this in your fellowship, Melissa, but we took care of a lot of flight attendants at our hospital. And the story was the same over and over again. It's like, mm -hmm. it was so easy to just have a few minis yes. at the end of the shift. And then the very culture of flight attendants and pilots and is that you're transient, you're going from city to city, you don't know the crew you're with every single time. So you're trying to break through these social barriers. It's kind of a party lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And the drinking culture and even the cocaine culture as shown in that movie, what's the movie with Denzel Washington? Flight? Is that what it's called? It's portrayed so devastatingly. So I think that's a big deal for that. I don't, that's not really, well, I guess that's travel, travel and entertainment. Yeah. Those folks are really at risk as well. Well, and also you think of all the time changes. So you are also battling at some 
insomnia or you're, you know, back to the whole circadian rhythm. You can't sleep. I'll just have a little cocktail with a couple of ambient. <laughs> yeah, with a couple of ambient. Uh, yeah. What about construction workers? So my husband oh, yeah. works in the steel industry, and he comes home all the time and says, "We have a big problem. Like everywhere I go, there they people have handfuls of pills in their pocket, and it's interesting because they get they're highly monitored, mm -hmm. and they get random drug screens at jobs, and mm -hmm. um, not his company, but he says in general the whole culture of construction seems to be fraught with opioid abuse. What is that a thing as well? Yeah. Yes, construction is the number two industry for having a high substance use disorder, alcohol being the most prevalent substance. And second is pain medication. Construction is hard. It is physically intense, laborious. They get injured with the re high repetition and the weight and or being out in the elements, being on their feet. So I can definitely see how pain medication is more prevalent and more easily accessible. I also know that with prescription like, oh, you're in construction. Okay, you need some moxies, right? I mean, that was definitely the attitude 10, 15 years ago. Now, in terms of why there is high drug screening, especially in the construction industry, if it's a large construction company that goes out for federal or state bids, they need to show that they, especially with federal bids, they need to show that they have a drug-free workplace. To qualify for federal dollars, they need to have the drug-free workplace. And one of the components of the drug-free workplace is random drug testing to show that they that their population or their employees are drug free. That is so interesting. I see yeah. so many patients in that industry. And some of that with the drug testing that you talk about is maybe what drives some patients into treatment there because of that fear. Mm -hmm. But I, I don't know, some of them seem to be getting around it for a long time. So I don't know, like, right, their use seems to be an ongoing thing. So well, I don't know, it's, I mean, it's, I it's a little bit of a deterrent, but I don't know. But you know, I believe the whole wizenator industry and buying artificial yes. urine, that's can be a highly lucrative for, for some people. Back to the whole cost. I mean, this issue has a huge economic impact, right? The economic impact of substance use in the private sector and in businesses is phenomenal. I mean, in a study back in 2015 by JAMA, they said that the, the societal impact of substance use in America is somewhere between 500 to 740 billion dollars a year. Okay. Wow. And most recent statistic, especially given after COVID, and we can talk about how COVID has impacted this, is that it's now over a trillion. The U.S. spends over a trillion dollars a year addressing substance use in our culture. And it's not because of healthcare and it's not because of criminal justice. 75% of that amazing budget is being paid from workplace productivity loss. Private sector is paying that huge bill. That's that's crazy. That's right? crazy. Yeah. And so like, where is that money going to, right? It's paying for presenteeism, like prescription medication, or even showing up to work, having, you know, on medical cannabis or, you know, cannabis abuse, you show up to work, you're physically there, but you're not mentally checked in and you're not productive, right? And then high rate of absenteeism where you're just constantly calling in sick. We know people who struggle with a substance use disorder have 50% more workday loss than people who don't. People who struggle with a prescription pain medication disorder have an average of 30 more days off than people who don't. That's an entire month. Wow. And yeah. is that in a year period? Yeah. 
Yeah. In one year, 30 days, 30 days. But then what about productivity? Productivity is also lost. They're not as productive. They're not as engaged at work. In fact, there was a study that looked at just smokers and they, there was a linear relationship that if you're a current smoker, you had the lowest productivity at work. Really? Yeah. And so if you are a non-smoker, a never smoker, you have the highest productivity. Okay. Can you delve into that a bit? What, why is that? What is that about? Is that about taking smoke breaks or are there other factors involved with that? They, you know, that study didn't really look too deep into it, but it's highly, it was alluded to the fact that it was the smoke break, right? Constantly looking at the time, going for my smoke break for 15 minutes, coming back in, washing hands, but just not being able to mentally check back into work. Yeah. As a small business owner, having (laughs) had employees, even if they go and take, well, I'm just going to go out for my smoke break. Well, even if they're taking that 10, 15 minutes, taking those breaks, you don't get right back into your productivity. Oh yeah. And so it turns into 20, 30 minutes. And then if they're taking sometimes three or four of those throughout the day, you're losing sometimes half your work day at the end of the day. Right. So that absolutely makes sense. That's a really interesting study. And then, oh yeah, it's, that's not it. There's also high turnover because you're upset. They're not being productive. They're constantly calling in sick and turnover and finding staff is expensive, right? Depending on the type of industry, hiring, recruiting, training, that is all, that cost is all eaten by the company. And then having a high, your employee population with having a lot of substance use disorder can really affect company morale, especially if there's poor productivity, high absenteeism, presenteeism, high turnover, the morale is really affected. Uh, We know there's increased risk for workplace injuries and fatalities. So there's a lot of impact on the company when someone has a substance use disorder. Do you see companies that handle this well, that are set up to support their employees who have a substance use disorder that, you know, provide them with resources and follow up appropriately? Yeah. Or And or conversely, do you see companies that do this really badly? I think, unfortunately, most companies do it badly. I ended that last statement as having someone like this is so expensive. But I want you to know that there are studies showing that having a very proactive and compassionate stance for their employees who struggle with this is cost effective. And in fact, if you have a compassionate stance and you are able to have the safety culture at your work to say, if you have this problem, we will get you help. If you have this problem, we will accommodate you so you can get treatment that when companies support their employees, they have the best recovery rate. That's what we've seen. That people who say that their work is encouraging them in their recovery have a much higher rate of success, even compared to when it's family members that's asking them for recovery. I've seen this clinically over and over again, where we see a patient who's presenting for substance use treatment, whether it's for medically managed withdrawal or whether it's for residential treatment. And it's amazing to see the contrast between folks who are literally referred by their company. Mm -hmm. And in fact, I saw someone today day whose boss brought them to treatment like personally and I have to think well maybe they have some connection to substance use and recovery but he literally brought his employee to Utah from Washington and said to him your job is waiting for you but you must complete this program otherwise you know not only is your job not going to be here but your whole life is is not going to be the same as it as it could be 
Right. And then on the other hand, I, we've seen people who just get dropped by their job, no guarantee of, you know, paid leave or support. And of course, the whole benefits thing is another topic. But it, it's been really heartwarming over the years to see how companies or individuals, employers, supervisors, even colleagues who really support someone with an addiction can make so much difference. Yeah. There are studies that show that employer sponsored recovery programs is cost beneficial, especially any, and you have to look at the type of industry they're in. So they find that if like agriculture, if the company was able to support their employees in recovery, that they actually avoided like $1,500 a year. Okay. That that was the cost savings when it comes to reduce turnover, less work days, increase productivity, decrease healthcare costs, right? That if they were able to get that employee in recovery, they saved a lot of money. The industry with the highest cost savings was in the information and communications, where if you can get someone who's like a computer software programmer, someone highly skilled to be in meaningful recovery, their productivity goes up and finding these people with these skilled, special skills, highly specialized skills is cost beneficial. And I think it creates a, a fabulous safety culture and shows the employees that this company cares about them. They're not going to just use you and spit you out, but your family, right? And you are a valued Asset because as for you know any company will know will tell you the re the most expensive resources is the personnel. This is all about parity at the end of the day, right? I mean, companies will support an employee if they have pneumonia or they require a hospitalization for appendicitis or for maternity leave. And I think we've made some progress in the mental health realm where now I think employees are more comfortable saying, you know, I need to take this time to go visit my therapist or I need to have my mental health. Addressed, and yet we're still lagging behind with addiction and substance use and with the stigma that surrounds that, that it's still a problem that hides in the shadows and it does so at work too. And I think this is the thing where you were saying that, you know, 10% of the working population have a substance use disorder, 13% of the part-time workforce has a substance use disorder. But I hazard a guess that if you went to owners or, you know, supervisors, employees of large corporations and you asked them how many of your employees struggle with addiction, they would estimate that number to be far, far less. And it has to do with, mm -hmm. with hiding it because of all the reasons that people hide addiction, right? It's very shameful and they don't want to put their job on the line. But I love this approach of having this like lo open, loving, kind of compassionate culture where people feel like they can get the help that they need. Oh, yeah. And, and that it's you know, cost effective. And it's cost effective. And there's certain industries that are more proactive. Like the most famous is probably the HIMSS program for pilots, right? And so what they take it's, it has the highest success rate of any recovery cohort, and it shows that it's up to 85% will go without relapse in five years, which is Amazing. amazing. And this program has been around for 40 years. And why is this needed? Because it's a very safety sensitive position. As a pilot, you're manning this huge plane with potentially 300 people or more on it. And so what the HIMS does, which is an organization that partners with the FAA to have a lot of incentives for participation. Um, it's not punitive. There's a lot of peer 
peer and mutual support. They offer residential programs. They really have a lot of pilot peer monitoring and accountability. It's a great wraparound service that what the HIMSS is able to offer. And then for lawyers, there's the other program. It's called LAP, which is considered like him like hymns light. And so that's for anyone who's kind of passed a bar. They have their own mm-hmm. program that supports them in terms of their recovery. Right. And as um, healthcare professionals, we also have one that's called the PHP Professional Health Program. In the state of Utah, it's ran by Doppel. Yeah. Tell us more about this because I think most of our learners are likely medical providers, not all of them, but not everyone has an idea or has been exposed to what PHPs are. And many Many states do have these, and I think it's important to know what they are. At some point, if you haven't already, you will have a colleague in the medical profession with a substance use disorder, mm-hmm. and you might just be the person who can advocate for them and have at least have some knowledge about what uh, kind of resources they have. So can you go into the PHP a little bit? And Yeah, so PHP stands for either you know physician health programs, professional health programs. In the state of Utah, it's professional health programs because they will help nurses, pharmacists, physical therapists, veterinarians, you name it, in the healthcare industry, working with patients in this safety-sensitive position. Their goal is to reach meaningful sobriety, have meaningful recovery, and being able to enter back into the workforce, right? To be able to resume with their license and go back to patient care. It'll include assessments. It will help with finding them the right treatment program, close monitoring to ensure success. The part about that that's important is it also advocates for public safety. So Mm -hmm. PHPs, just like the HIMSS program, I mean, one of their main roles is to assess if this person with the medical license is safe to work with the public, right? They make that determination. That's right. Are they fit, able to be present enough to operate successfully, to pass out medications correctly, to be able to handle a fragile patient in a loving, and compassionate and professional way. Is there any difference in how a physician or a provider is treated, whether they enter voluntary into a program like this or if they are involuntary and enter into the program? Fear, that goes back to like the fear and the shame if you have Mm -hmm. a provider that self-identifies. It is, I don't know, Melissa, you you correct me, but I think it is favorable for people who self-report. It looks much better for them. I know I know this because working with Dr. Howell, you know, she's kind of all of our mentors, but she used to be involved with the PHP in Georgia, and she just always used to tell our patients at the hospital, whether they were nurses or other medical professions professionals, she would really urge them to self-report to their mm-hmm. board, and she would tell them this, is, this would be much better for you if you self-report rather than you get caught that the ramifications are really different and it's because you go before a board of people whether it's the php or whether it's the medical board or whether it's whatever board you sit and they're humans and so i think all of us prefer to have someone who comes forward and says look i have a problem and i need help versus someone who's been caught is that correct melissa would you say yes i and that they're a little bit more lenient i would say if if you self-report versus being caught and then they'll take your license away. If you show up to work inebriated, intoxicated, 
it looks a lot worse than if you show up and say, I have a problem and I need help. And it's a big process. Like just, I know working with a couple of nurses really closely who have had their license revoked because of substance use. Once the medical license is revoked, it's really a difficult process to get it back. And so maintaining. Yeah, I believe it's like a five-year journey to get it back. Yes, and they have basically have to repeat. It's almost like repeating nursing school, but more. They have to really prove competency, prove sobriety, prove they're over and above. So these kinds of programs like the PHP and obviously there, you know, other programs that exist for pilots and, and lawyers, I mean, they're so helpful. So it's, it's too bad really that there are not more analogous programs like this for other organizations. There are other ways companies can also help you with recovery. You have those programs, but then also like recovery friendly environments, union sponsored AA meetings, union-sponsored NA meetings, creating a safe space with a safety culture for their employees to be able to, to verbalize and acknowledging that, you know, if you have a problem and you're sober, you qualify for FMLA leave under ADA, right? And so ADA, Americans with Disabilities Act, does recognize substance use disorder. If you need to take that time to you know, you need accommodations to go to the methadone clinic or to go to therapy, to take your FMLA leave, right? To go into inpatient rehab that is recognized, but AD, ADA is not recognized if you're actively using. So it won't protect you if you're actively using and you show up inebriated or intoxicated to work. So that's interesting. So what happens for benefit coverage if someone get temporarily suspended from work because they've been using and they're currently using and the workplace knows that they don't qualify for FMLA. Are they just out on their own dime then for the period of time? That they're That's going to be up to the company to decide. It's up to the company. They're covered by the ADA to, to get uh, FMLA. There is no definition of active, like how long you have to be sober or in recovery for ADA. So you just can't say, I need accommodations to go drink, right? I think that's really kind of what it means is if you show up intoxicated and you need, you, you can't show up intoxicated and be like, you can't fire me. It's ADA. Right. Okay. So that makes a lot of sense. So you can't claim your active substance use as a disability. You have to Correct. actively be seeking treatment yes. in order for it to count. You can't like take FMLA because you're hungover. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> Okay. But but I think it's important, yeah, in helping advocate for our patients that that's when we're there and we can help them and say, now you're here and you're here in treatment and to keep them in their treatment and keep them on their path of sobriety. Now you need to go to your HR and you can use your FMLA so that you can now come to visits and you can go see your therapist and go to your groups. So that's the difference and we want, and we can help advocate for them at that point. And fill so, out the paperwork. Yep, fill out the yep. paperwork and help them. And I've I've actually done that many times for patients. Absolutely. And then, you know, with companies familiar with the EAP program, right? Employee Assistance Program. We know that there was a study in 2017, sorry, 2007, that said 66% of employers with at least 100 employees and 90% of all Fortune 500 companies had an EAP program. And what is that? So it's a workplace program to address behavioral health issues, including substance use, depression, anxiety, work-life balance, 
burnout. And typically it's three to eight sessions with an offsite contracted counselor that is free and available to them to help discuss their issues. And if they need more, then they will then be referred within their healthcare system to find another, to find additional help outside of that EAP. The literature shows there's positive impact in terms of healthcare costs with an EAP, but we, you find that the biggest barriers is people not, A, not knowing about EAP, two, not trusting their EAP. It's that lack of safety culture that I think as leaders in your work, you need to really establish that your company is there to help the workers. It's a safe place to work. They have your best interest at heart and therefore the employees can turn around and give their best work and best effort so everyone can thrive. That's that's it, right? So you mentioned some of the ways companies can do that. So you said creating a safety culture by having union-sponsored meetings and by maybe having an EAP available. Mm-hmm. Are there other things that companies can do in your thinking that would be helpful to, to really create a safe culture around substance use? I think I do like the components of the drug-free workplace, and there is research showing that companies with a drug-free workplace do have increased productivity, decreased healthcare costs, less turnover. And by having that that drug-free workplace, there's five components of it. One is education, and that is huge. It's saying, let's educate you about the problems with, with drugs. And I think one substance that really needs to be talked about now is cannabis. There was a recent study that showed that the perception of cannabis as being harmless has increased by 30%. When more people are afraid of ibuprofen than they are of cannabis, I think there's a problem. And <laughs> we're laughing because we oh, we so to agree. each other about this ad infinitum, ad nauseum, because <laughs> we see so many negative consequences to cannabis and the guise of medical cannabis, which is now a thing here in Utah. Because people are intoxicated and impaired and have- Yeah, in the workplace, sadly. In the workplace, yeah, yep. what this means. But it's got to be hugely challenging challenging for employers. I don't even I don't even know how they're oh, dealing with it right now. A lot a lot of companies aren't even drug testing anymore because they can't hire anyone. Oh my goodness. But you see like how so if we compare the impairment that is caused by cannabis mm-hmm. to alcohol, you know, we would never have someone at work who was blowing a positive 0.08. Yeah. Yeah, 0.8 or even a 0.4, right? Right. And yet it's a and same thing goes for prescription controlled substances. If people are taking prescription opioids or benzodiazepines, they still can't come to work impaired. Oh, it's you know, not even Controlled substance. You don't want someone on Benadryl falling asleep. There you go. So how is cannabis any different? And you know what's this? What's going to happen here? What's the solution? Oh, that's that's a million dollar question, and a lot of companies are really struggling with that because the crux of it is, oh, I use, but I'm not impaired. Well, you may not feel impaired, but there's lots of studies that show even 12 hours after use, you're not mentating well, you're not performing well, your hand-eye coordination is still slow or off. There was a study back in the 90s where 20 
pilots all got to use a bunch of THC. I mean, I don't even know if this was past, you know, IRB now, but the study is hilarious. 20 pilots all and got that would have been of- lower THC content in the 90s. I'm going to bring the 90s, that up. Right. And they would they all smoked and then they would flight simulate. Right. And 24 hours later, they were still impaired on the flight simulator. So that's disturbing. If- it is disturbing. So someone who may have used on Sunday coming to work on Monday to work the crane, knowing that studies have shown they're still not fully, that cannabis hasn't cleared the system and there can still be some delay in their reaction time, in their mentation, their ability to concentrate and pay attention. Yeah, that's really interesting. So that's a good teaching point with our patients because I think we all encounter not even ambivalence. We just can't encounter straight like refusal mm-hmm. surrounding cannabis and its negative effects. Right. So at least educating them, you know, like the whole assess, advise, mm-hmm. you know, that what is it? What are those A's again? For <laughs> I can't even remember. <laughs> assess, advise, assist. There you go. So that's what it is assess advise assist you know at least you can advise people like this this does cause impairment so consider it a risk in your workplace and when you're driving and when you're doing right. things like taking care of your children or other responsibilities in your life right right are you able to be fully present right well and i and i love what you brought up earlier we talk about when this this drug-free workplace and this burnout that we have it's terrible and i think we have a lot of factors going on right now this is becoming a systemic problem that employees have a right for a healthy culture and a drug-free workplace. And you have your good employees that are just giving up and just quitting. So not only are you struggling with impaired employees, then you have good employees just finally saying the morale solo, I'm just, I'm done and I'm leaving. And then I think this this culture is so problematic. And I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's such a struggle. Like, I don't know what, what are employers to do? Hopefully take a very proactive stance on developing the healthiest, safest culture possible, right? Knowing that it's expensive to do, but overall, I think it's going to be the most cost-effective. Part of the drug-free workplace isn't just doing the drug screens, but it's also educating their employees. It's not benign and there are repercussions and consequences. Part of the drug-free workplace is saying, if you have a problem, we have resources for you. We have EAP, we have health insurance programs. And that's the thing about the insurance programs is I would like the companies to advocate that whatever insurance companies that they choose to sign up with cover substance use oh, treatment. Here, here. Right? It's not just here's some buprenorphine, but really being able to advocate for inpatient if that's what it needs, whatever the whatever the employee needs, having that parity, getting them the care that they deserve and that they need. Yeah, you the appropriate level of care. At the appropriate level of care. You would never tell someone who has new diabetes, okay, well, we're only going to get you metformin and you can't have any of the other meds. And that's that's essentially what we're doing. Oh, you have cancer. Okay, well, exercise and sleep better. That's and it. hope for the best. Exactly. <laughs> and hope for the best. And we'll check back with you in three months. And if you still have cancer, yeah. we're going to have to fire you. Yeah. <laughs> Right? Isn't that kind of it? It's like, oh, you have a substance use problem. You better go get help for it. Otherwise, we're going to fire you. But then that's it. 
you know. Right. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Well, what else? Well, so is there anything else we need to know in terms of substance use in the workplace? What other things that we haven't talked about yet that we should talk about before wrapping up? So as if you're a supervisor, for our listeners out there who may be supervisors, managers, or even you're worried about your colleague or your coworker, the red flags that you have for kind of this workplace addiction, for, there's like four categories. So one is leave and attendance. So remember early in the presentation we talked about, or in the podcast, we talked about how high absenteeism, constantly calling in sick. So this unexplained absence from work, frequent tardiness, excessive use of sick leave, and also looking at the patterns of absence. So if they're like always missing the day after a payday, or they're frequently gone Monday or Friday. Oh yeah. They're trying to recover. I've, I've had this happen firsthand. Monday, always gone on a Monday, a colleague never showed up never showed up. So these are kind of red flags. Also this frequent unplanned absences, their grandmother died again. Like how many grandmothers do you have, right? Like this always coming up with excuses that just doesn't seem right. So that's one of the red flags. Another red flag is performance problems. So remember we talk about productivity. So you're missing deadlines, giving careless and sloppy work and incomplete assignments. You're not meeting your production quota faulty analysis. You're just not giving high quality work, especially in someone who was meeting all the requirements and then just failing. Third is relationships. You know, addiction is a silo disease. If all of a sudden they're not being able to relate and have good, healthy relationships with their coworkers, with belligerent behaviors, argumentative, short-tempered, or being it inappropriate by like asking for money. Fourth uh, red flag is looking at behaviors at work suggesting inebriation or someone who's intoxicated. So what could that be? It could be like smelling of alcohol or you know, cannabis on the breath, on clothes, staggering, having unsteady gait, bloodshot eyes, mood and behavioral changes, especially like excessive laughter or just inappropriateness, especially after lunch or something like that. Excessive use of mouthwash or breath mints, avoidance of supervisors, especially after lunch, being tremulous or even sleeping on duty are all kind of the red flags you should be aware of if you suspect someone may be struggling with either risky or substance use disorder at work. I'm just nodding my head because I'm like, "Uh uh-huh. Yep. Those are all red flags. Mm -hmm. I've seen them. Great. I think the take home for this is yes, people with a substance use disorder or risky use are working. They are your colleagues. They are your employees. They can be your employers. They're there. As a company, it's expensive, but you can create a safety culture that addresses this humanely, compassionately, and in return, these workers will reach meaningful sobriety at a much better success rate and be able to come back and be productive members of your team again and productive members of society. We can get them the treatment, have them and be a productive member of society. Great. That's that's so, that's just, that's it. I love that. So these folks are 
are working with us, we work with them, they're working with our patients, they're the families, they're in the workplace, and then employees and workplaces in general can create a safe culture surrounding substance use that will, it's not only the cost effective thing to do, it's the humane, it's the right thing to do for people. It is it the right thing to do. Working and, and yeah, it's the right thing to do. That is it. so true. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. That was really fascinating. I just loved it. I think it's so interesting. Absolutely. And, you know, if someone leaves after listening to this podcast and go, occupational medicine is not occupational therapy, that's a win. <laughs> that's a win for you. That's the that's number point number three. That should be point yeah. number one. Well, thank, thank you. you. Thank Absolutely. you so much. My pleasure. It was so fun. Until next time. Hey, check us out at theaddictionfiles.com or email us at theaddictionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you so much to Ricky Valides for use of his song, Awake. Check him out at rickyvalides.com. Hosts and guests are not responsible for any harm caused by information obtained from this source. As each person is unique, your advice to seek the advice of your own healthcare professional to treat any medical conditions you may be having. Opinions expressed on the show are those of the addiction files and not of our respective employers.